you could turn with me again to the book of Colossians. We're continuing our series in Colossians, The Hope of Glory. This morning, we are hitting the meat and potatoes of the letter. This is the most famous passage in the book. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20 is a section. We're going to take the first half of it this morning. So we're, we're hitting the, probably the most famous passage in the book, the one that if you think of Colossians probably comes to mind, this really high Christology that Paul talks about in this letter. Before we turn our attention there, though, let me begin with a word of prayer. Lord, every time we gather as your people to sit under the teaching of your word, to sit under the authority of your word and the blessing of your word, to be changed by your word, we want you to fix our eyes and our hearts upon Jesus. We always have that desire, Father, but what a privilege this morning to come to a text that is just saturated with Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we ask, full of hope, that you would do that again. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Make him beautiful this morning. Make him glorious this morning. Make him relevant to our lives. And do that all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a short time after we moved into our house in the neighborhood, just a few blocks away from here, I was walking down the street one afternoon, and there was a garage sale going on. And one of the houses, probably about half a block down. And so you, know, you see a garage sale and you don't have anything better to do. So you kind of just drop through and you kind of peruse what, what's there. And they were trying to sell me this rackety old basketball hoop that looked like it was about to fall over. And they were selling it for like $200. And so I'm like dickering. And I really don't want to spend $200 on this. I'm not really interested. As I was looking at the rest of the stuff they had, though, I noticed they had a whole section where they were selling old children's books. And so having young kids, thought maybe there might be some cheap ones. Everything was actually really overpriced at their garage sale, but I noticed they had some books, little children's books, that appeared to be Christian children's books. And so I was looking at them, and it intrigued me, and I almost bought some of them. They were too overpriced. Maybe I'm too Dutch. I didn't buy them. But I left with the impression, hey, I have some Christians living down the street. This is great. There's some believers in our neighborhood. So good to know. Then I was surprised. Actually, about a month ago, I was walking down that street again. I'd actually gone for a run, and I saw that typical scene. I'm sure you know what I'm referring to. Two young men in black pants and black shoes and a white shirt and a black tie with little name badges. And immediately, I realized, we've got some Mormons in our neighborhood. And so I kind of did an extra walk up and down my block. I, I love getting in those kind of conversations, so I'm trying to lure them into seeing which house I go into. Come and, and share with me. <laughs> you know? They, they didn't take me up on it. They, they kind of noticed me, but didn't come in. I was disappointed. And then I was surprised. Because a week later, actually, after a run again, it was at night, and I saw a car parked in front of that house. And I saw the same two young men get out and go. It's late at night, 10 o'clock at night, and go into the house. Obviously, go to their home. And I came to the realization I didn't have a family of believers living down the street. It was a family of Mormons. Well, why aren't Mormons Christians? Why wouldn't we hold that Mormons, people belonging to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, are Orthodox Christians like the rest of us? Well, we're going to see this morning in this text the reason why. The reason why, in large part, is because of what they believe about Jesus, about who he is, about who Jesus was, who the Word was, before he came to earth. It's important and it's significant. And in today's day and age, there might be some who would tell you there's even sort of a, a PR campaign by 
the Mormon church, to have them associated more closely with Christianity. But in reality, they are not. And we see why in this morning's text. Why it was a shock to my system to realize I had thought I had some believers down the street. When in reality, it was people peddling a different religion. We'll look now at Colossians chapter 1 and see the beginning of the difference. Here's what we see. Colossians 1 verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts. I believe Paul has a goal in that passage, really in this entire section. Verses 15 to 20, Paul has one stated goal, to show us the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ in two different areas. The supremacy of Christ in creation, as we'll see today, and the supremacy of Christ in redemption, as we'll see next week. This morning, we're going to look at that first goal, that Paul is arguing for the supremacy of Christ in creation. That big Christology, the study of Jesus, of Christ, that we talk about in this letter. Well, the first way he shows us that Christ is supreme is he begins by marking out that Christ is king. He is Lord of the created realm. So he says in verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Beginning of this famous section of Colossians, Paul tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, God being invisible is not a new idea, right? John 4, 24, John says, God is spirit. Judaism had always held that God was spirit. A person, yes. A personal God, yes, but a spirit. Invisible to human eyes. Not capable of being captured by a symbol or a picture. That's really the essence of the first two commandments, right? You think back to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy when the When the Ten Commandments are laid out, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, there is one true God. And the second commandment, you will have no carved image or likeness of anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath. Why? Because God is not visible. You can't see him. You can't make an image. There's not something you can carve out of wood that will represent God sufficiently. The point is, God is utterly unique. He's unseen. He's invisible. The creation, the Bible says, testifies to God's power. All of creation gives evidence of His glory. It tells us that there is a God. But we don't actually see the Father in creation. He's hidden from sight. Hidden from sight, that is, until... The birth of Christ. Paul's point is that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. He makes the transcendent God most tangibly imminent. The God who is up there and out there and overall tangibly imminent. Touching the creation. Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 4.4 
that Satan rails against this kind of special revelation. He loathes it. Paul says he blinds the eyes of unbelievers with the express purpose of keeping them from seeing and comprehending this special revelation, namely the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Christ, who is the image of God. There's a reason why Satan is set against blinding people from seeing that. But how is Jesus the image of God? It's not the first time the Bible talks about someone bearing God's image, is it? So in what way is Jesus in the image? In what way is he in the Father's image? Is it like Genesis 1.26? That, that, that passage at the beginning of the Bible with the creation account where it describes image and likeness? Is Paul saying that Jesus shows us a reflection of the Father, like male and female, like mankind? Well, of course, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the original image, and we, mankind, male and female, are likeness. We're the derivative images. Our image bears a partial reflection of the full and perfect image Christ makes of God. Hebrews 1.3 makes it perfectly clear. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus contains all the power, the full deity, every aspect of character, and all the glory of the Father. And in Jesus, all that glory, deity, power, and character now comes near to us in the special revelation of God incarnate. As the Apostle John says in his Gospel, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. Yet now, the only God who is at the Father's side, He Jesus has made him known. But then Paul says something that at first blush kind of seems to muddy the waters. I'm tracking with you. He's the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, we get a visible representation for the first time of who God is and his character and his glory when, when we behold Jesus Christ. And then Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. It's here that my Mormon neighbors and their Jehovah's Witnesses cousins are nodding their heads. Yes! See, I told you. The firstborn of creation. Even Paul agrees Jesus hasn't always existed. He's the firstborn. For the Mormons, he's the offspring of a physical union between Heavenly Father and Mary. In Mormon theology, they're actually married for a period. Jesus is their offspring because he's a good, obedient Mormon. He is elevated to Godhood and given his own universe. And you and I as well, if we are good Mormons, could be elevated to Godhood as well. The gospel according to Mormonism. Do you see the difference? Jesus is one of many gods. To Jehovah's Witnesses, he is the first product of creation. The first off the line. He's actually the archangel Michael. He's this powerful spiritual being, but he is not actually God at all. And when he takes on flesh, he empties himself of his spiritual potency. 
to make atonement for sins. How a mere man makes atonement for sins, they can't answer. But you begin to see the difference. Firstborn is the language that empowered the teachings of Arius. Arius, who gave rise to that early Christian heresy, Arianism. Arius held and taught that Jesus was a created being. To quote Arius, he said that there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he, Jesus, was not. In other words, there was a point in history when he didn't exist. Then the Father created him, the firstborn, and then he existed. Remember when Arius' view was defeated, what council it was? The council of Nicaea. Now, why did Arius lose the debate at the council of Nicaea? How was it that the fiery Athanasius, Athanasius is this great character from church history, you kind of get the sense he's just sort of, he's just kind of one of those guys that's just sort of a, bull, a bulldog. He just latches on to something and won't let go to the chagrin and annoyance of Arius and everyone else. You've got Athanasius, this little, this little pit bull that is just going after. He's the lion of Christological orthodoxy in the early church. How is he able to convince everyone at the Council of Nicaea that Christ is fully God and not created? That he's always existed with the Father in glory? Well, here's a little hint. It wasn't because Athanasius was more popular. It wasn't because at the start of the council, Athanasius had more numbers. He didn't. The emperor was inclined to agree with Arius. Many of the bishops and pastors liked Arius. He was popular. He was a, a well-known and well-liked teacher. And so going into the council, he had numbers on his side, and yet orthodoxy prevailed. Why? How? Because Arius argued for the correct understanding of firstborn. The word in this text. The word for, at the start of verse 16, clues us into what Paul is saying. He tells us exactly what he means by firstborn. Listen again. And listen for this as well. The key to realizing this is to see the phrase, all things. That little phrase serves as sort of the unifying phrase of the whole passage. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. Now, in a little bit, we're going to look in more detail at all those little prepositions. For, by, in, through. Right now, we can see clearly Paul is underscoring the direct connection between all things and creation. Not some things, not most of the things, not everything except Jesus. No, all things. Jesus is separate from that which was created. He's before it, Paul says. And he sits over it. That over is a key word. Verse 15 is probably best translated the way the NIV does. It says that Jesus is the firstborn over creation. So firstborn doesn't mean he's the first in the sequence of things. The word can actually also mean he's first in rank. He's supreme in dignity. He has the supreme dignity over all creation. He's preeminent and sovereign over all things. In other words, there's Jesus, and all of creation sits under his feet. It's like thinking of a monarch and the whole concept of primogeniture. 
that big fancy word that means the heir gets all the goodies, right? So if you're the second son or the first daughter, it's the first male heir that gets all the stuff. He gets the full inheritance. He gets all the titles, all the wealth, all the power, all the authority, the land, the domain. It all belongs to the heir. In fact, in the British aristocracy, by, you get, by the time you get to the third generation, you actually lose the title. So if you're born to the king, you're the son of the king, you're the first generation, second son, you're going to be a duke. Your son will be a duke. Your grandson will not be a duke. He'll just be related to the royal family. But that's not what happens here. Paul is pointing our attention to the reality of what Hebrews tells us. That the heir is Jesus. Literally echoing Colossians, Hebrews 1-2 says, The Son whom the Father has appointed is heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. The point is that Jesus is unique. He's preeminent. He comes before anything else. And he's sovereign. He's the rightful king of creation. Listen to how the Belgic Confession puts it. That's one of those historic creeds of the church. The Belgic Confession says this. We believe that Jesus Christ, according to his divine nature, is the only begotten Son of God, begotten from eternity, not made nor created. For then he should be a creature, but co-essential and co-eternal with the Father, the express image of his person and the brightness of his glory, equal unto him in all things. He is the Son of God, not only from the time that he assumed our nature, when he took on flesh, became a human, but from all eternity. Christ is supreme over creation as its king, as the image of the Father, as the firstborn, supreme in dignity over all creation. Next we see Christ is the composer of creation. There's several images we could have used this morning to illustrate what Paul's talking about. We could have talked about construction metaphors, right? We could, we could have said that Christ is the architect and the builder and the remodeler of creation. We could have employed those. We could have used dramatic metaphors. We could have said that Christ is like the producer and the writer and the, and the director and the main character of the drama. That would have been appropriate. That's what Paul is describing here. I've chosen to use the metaphor of a symphony. In part because when we step back from creation, if we have ears to hear, will realize that all of creation is playing one majestic melody. At first blush, it might seem discordant. Kind of out of step. What's going on? You live next to a highway. It doesn't sound like a melody, does it? But if you step back, in reality, there's this incredibly multi-layered song being played out for God's glory. And Christ, Paul shows us in Colossians 1, is involved in every phase of the musical production. So first we see Christ as composer of creation. Colossians 1.16 For by Him, we're getting into those prepositions, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him. Now, 
I don't know if you have a favorite composer. Maybe some of you don't even ever listen to classical music. I'm not like a huge classical music buff, although I have some songs I'll play on my computer. But when I was learning to play the piano, I loved Beethoven. Like Beethoven was sort of my composer as a little like rudimentary guy that was just playing like really basic stuff on the piano. I loved him. And I loved, I loved everything about him. I, I don't know if it was just the crazy hair. He just had this like crazy kind of fro that was unkept just all over the place. So he kind of looked a little Einsteinish, like this crazy genius. There's sort of that aspect of him. I just love the music. You think of, when you think Beethoven, what do you think? Dun, 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 right? There's just like this massive, dramatic element. You listen to him and it's like, whoa. Only a guy with that kind of hair could write that kind of music. I loved Beethoven. Like, I remember the first time I got to play like the basic, da, 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 you know, it's like I'm playing like a third of the chords and trying to use like two hands to do the one. It was so cool. I remember seeing a picture of Beethoven. It's a painting of him writing music. And it's sort of this picture of the mad composer. It shows him he's sitting at a piano, and there's papers and pages just all over the room, just stacked all over his piano and, and thrown about the floor. He, he's got, like, pencils in his hair and his, like, the tails. You know, like, this is old school, right? So he's got, like, the tails on his, on his coat. And they're, like, flying all over the place. And he just he looks like the mad composer. Side note, guys. If your wife is ever on you about how dirty your office is, my office is usually dirty, there's studies that have been shown that Beethoven, Einstein, Mark Twain, geniuses tend to have messy offices. So just use that line when your office is really messy. Just aiming for genius, honey. That's all I'm doing here. You can use that one too when, when your hair is really unkept, I think. Twain, Beethoven, yep. So, so here's this, this mad composer. And, and he's just a genius. As he goes on in life, remember... He becomes deaf. Can't even hear the music he's composing. It, this isn't to denigrate our worship songs, right? But it's not like our worship songs are overly complex. He, he's not sitting there like thinking of like a little tune to strum. The dude's writing concertos and he can't hear. But his mind is so magnificent. He knows in his head how the music will sound. And they play it, and no one says, well, that was written by a deaf guy. <laughs> no, it was written by Beethoven. Well, the image of Beethoven is not the image Paul gives us of Christ. His creative process is not chaotic. It's not haphazard with papers all over the room. When the son wrote the grand concerto of creation, there's no scratch paper necessary. There's no rough drafts crumpled up in balls sitting in the corner. Heaven's throne room isn't a mess of sheets of music. At the Father's bidding, the Son picks up the pen of creation and He writes all six movements in perfect succession, each on the first attempt. Each movement in perfect harmony with what preceded it. And then he sat back. And he and the Father and the Spirit cranked up the volume and said, it is very good. I love how Proverbs 8 describes wisdom. Wisdom is sort of this Old Testament idea for the image and personification of God. It's sort of a preview to Jesus. 
Proverbs 8 says this, Proverbs 8, 27. When God established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. Verse 30, I, wisdom, was beside him, the father, like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. That's a cool image, isn't it? That's what's going on in creation. No doubt Paul has this in mind. Creation wasn't just work for Jesus as we think of work after the fall. It's drudgery. It's I have to get this done. I don't really enjoy it. I'm going to smack my finger as I throw the hammer to build this. I'm going to be sore. My back's going to hurt. When it's done, it'll be nice that it's done, but I'm going to be tired. No, this is easy. And it's pleasing. It's done as an act of joy before the Father. And the Father is taking delight and pleasure in watching the Son compose the concerto. And as composer, Christ rules supreme over every verse and every line and every measure and every note of His masterpiece. He has supremacy over all things. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Paul is combating false teachers in Colossians. In the city of Colossae, in the church at Colossae, there are false teachers who seem to have argued that while Christ is helpful, He is not sufficient. He's insufficient to deal with everything that humans will encounter in life. So you have this pluralistic ancient worldview that's really not all that unlike the worldview out there today. All sorts of deities and spiritualities and philosophies, religious ideas about how life should be lived. And as all of these are out there, these false teachers in Colossae are telling these Colossian Christians, reject, not, 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 not totally get rid of Christ, don't reject Him out of hand, but they're implying Christ only has the power to deal with certain spiritual realities, not all of them. I was kind of hoping it would be thundering at this point in the sermon. It would have made for a really cool rhetorical effect. Unfortunately, it's not. <laughs> Psalm 29, we see a preview of what Paul is saying here. In Psalm 29, we hear this. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, principalities, spirits, angels. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The bre the, he, makes the Lebanon, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. Like a startled calf when the thunder comes. The entire country of Lebanon. And Syrian like a wild young ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And strips the forest bare. And in his temple, all cry, glory. The Lord is enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. What does that have to do with our passage? In that world surrounding ancient Israel, are people worshiping all the things that the psalmist ascribes to the Lord. It's meant to echo. You hear the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. Call Yahweh, call Yahweh. It's meant to sound like thunder ripping over the earth. Call Yahweh, call Yahweh. The voice of the Lord is thundering and going out in the midst of people who worship the thunder as if it's a God. 
the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon that are carved into Asherah poles to worship false deities. The voice of the Lord spreads all the way over Lebanon. It spreads all the way to Kadesh, to the borders of Israel's empire. The voice of the Lord reigns supreme. The forest is stripped bare. The wilderness trembles and shakes. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. They would worship the sea and its creatures, the foreigners around them. But here we see that the Lord is enthroned as king forever. Paul would come alongside Psalm 29 and say, The voice of the Lord, the voice of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sits enthroned over all creation. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and powers and dominions. They all kneel and sit under the feet of the enthroned Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't compare the glory of what's composed to the composer. The composition reflects the brilliance. We're singing God's tune. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Christ as composer of creation is supreme. So from the greatest stars, the stars that dwarf our sun, to the smallest molecules. He is the composer of creation. I love how Sam Storms, Sam Storms describes the way Jesus expresses his lordship over all. He says Christ rules the full spectrum of creation. Whether visible but intangible. So visible, you can see it but you can't touch it. Like a mirage or a beam of light. I can see it. God rules it. Whether invisible but tangible. Like a summer breeze or the heat of the sun. Whether visible and tangible like an oak tree or a book or a baseball. Even things invisible and intangible. Like gravity or a feeling or a dream. He, God, conceived them all and he executed them all in Christ. And so the composer rules all the created realm. From spiritual forces to human kingdoms, little ants marching in order. Which leads to Paul's next point. Christ isn't just the composer of creation. Christ is creation's conductor. He conducts the created order. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not a new idea that the Father holds all things together. Jewish thought always had a place for the imminence of God with his creation. But that brings us to an important theological point that we need to maintain in today's day and age. A cultural critic, Christian Smith, he's actually a sociologist was at North Carolina Chapel Hill. Now he's at Notre Dame. This guy isn't at little backwater schools. He's at leading intellectual centers of the day. Did a study and came to the conclusion, argued persuasively, the dominant religion in America today, especially amongst young people, is little more than what he titled therapeutic, moralistic deism. 
The dominant American religion, especially among the young, is therapeutic, moralistic deism. Let's break it down. In other words, teens and 20-somethings, oftentimes their parents, quote-unquote, believe in God. In reality, this belief is disconnected. It believes in a disconnected deity, a God who's disengaged from the created world. It's therapeutic. So God exists to serve us, to make me feel better, to make me happy, to make life pleasant. That's why God is there. He's a big cookie jar. God exists for our benefit. It's moralistic. So it's therapeutic, moralistic. It's moralistic. In other words, if I'm a good person, his study found with exploring the thoughts and beliefs and worldviews of thousands of teens and 20-somethings, if I'm a good person, I will end up in heaven. In other words, the Bible would be summed up like this. God wants you to be a nice, pleasant, responsible person. Always tie your shoes and always go to bed on time. And you'll go to heaven. And finally, it's, it's deistic. It's deism. The main point Paul combats here. God exists. And he enters into the equation of life, but only when I need him. For the most part, he's just up there doing something. I don't know what. That is, until I call upon him to, to give me a boost. Summed up with the mantra, God helps those who help themselves. In the study, Smith found, in case you're thinking it's all those people out there, that an astounding percentage, a large majority of evangelical youth thought that phrase, which is heresy, was in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Implicit in the idea that we need to help ourselves is the idea that God is not actively engaged with His creation. Paul shows us here in Colossians 1, it's ultimately a Christless Christianity. The Bible has always maintained that God is not just optionally involved with creation. He's essentially involved. In other words, if God only got involved when I needed help on a test, so I hadn't studied well, and I'm, Lord, help me to remember the stuff that I never actually learned in the first place. If God only got involved as I'm sitting there, Lord, touch the leg of that kicker so he can make the field goal and I can celebrate going to the Super Bowl. If that's the only time God got involved, the world wouldn't just be a mess. Paul's point is the world would cease to exist. God is never disconnected. He's never withdrawn. He's never unengaged. He couldn't be. But how does God hold it all together? Not through a force. Not through an idea. Not through an occasional power surge. No, God holds it all together through a person. The resurrected Son, Jesus Christ. Colossae, if you remember, is in the Lycus Valley. It's actually a region that commonly has earthquakes. And historians know that there were several earthquakes that happened around the writing of this letter. They're not sure if it happened after they received it or just prior to them receiving this letter. Whatever it was, whether Paul knew they had just suffered an earthquake or they're reading this letter and shortly thereafter they suffered an earthquake, you think that's kind of shaping their perspective of the God who holds all things together? When the ground shakes under your feet, the stuff you walk on every day without giving it a second thought, 
it makes you pause. You no longer assume everything just goes on without God's involvement. Imagine how fresh these words seem to the church in Colossae. Imagine how much you realize your need for God's imminence. And praise God that his imminence, his involvement, is through the Son. As the author of Hebrews puts it, as he opens his letter, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, as we already read, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Theologians talk about common grace. I don't know if you're familiar with that word. Not something most of us think about all that much. Common grace isn't the same as saving grace. Saving grace is the grace God applies to people to transfer them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's saving grace. What Peter calls God causing us to be born again. That's saving grace. Common grace is the grace that God indiscriminately pours over all the universe to hold things in order. Every day there's not an earthquake right here is because of common grace. Every day a tsunami doesn't wipe out the eastern seaboard is because God is applying common grace. And Christ is the power behind the concurrence and the unity of the universe. The laws of physics, the laws of physics continue to operate because Christ Wills it be so. You jump. And gravity exerts itself. And you come back down. For some of us you jump and you come back down really quickly. After about four inches. If you're Michael. You think you can fly. And then you still come back down. Because gravity exists. And gravity exists because Christ. Exerts his authority. Over the spinning spheres. Mitochondria. Fire within the cell. Producing energy for your body because Christ never ceases to direct the drama. The earth orbits the sun, the moon orbits the earth, the seasons come and they go. The stars remain in the sky, the planets in their courses. Eggs get fertilized and they grow into living human beings. All because Christ conducts the symphony of creation to his glory. Jesus, Paul is telling us, is reality. He holds what we consider reality together. And so then failure to understand Jesus is failure to understand reality. You might be God's gift to physics, but if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the story. You're missing the main purpose of the cosmos. Jesus is thundering. He shakes the cedars of Lebanon. He shakes the roof of Providence. Final point. We need some new roofs in Lamexa. Christ as chorus of creation. Verse 16. All things were created through him. And that little word. All things are created for him. He's the great goal of creation's song. The goal of what creation is doing is to bring glory to Christ. One of the reasons I chose music as our motif this morning is that it commemorates what commentators say is happening here. There's a hymn. Can you even hear a word I'm saying right now? Okay, we'll keep going. They believe this is one of the earliest Christian hymns. There's a rhythm behind the words in the Greek. 
There's a cadence, and it's all pointing to Christ's glory. Before this section and after it, Paul directly refers to himself and to the Colossians, directly refers to himself and to the Colossians multiple times. But in verses 15 to 20, not a single reference to the author. Not a single reference to the audience. Christ, 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 Christ. One guy kind of describes it as, it's like he's standing there with the false teachers. And, you know, it's like sometimes Paul, you know, he's got these like constructed sentences. He's throwing combinations and it's right, right, left. This is just Paul standing toe-to-toe with the false teachers with Christology in his right hand. And it's just uppercut after uppercut after uppercut. It's a hymn to Christ's glory. And the hymn of creation is no different than what we see here. The great goal of creation is the glory of of Christ. Creation is building towards a climax. The mystery of the incarnation is that God enters the song directly. He's not content to write it. He's not content to direct it. He enters into the song. He picks up an instrument and he starts to play. And Jesus becomes the most important solo in all the symphony. Where the entire piece has been building his melody and the rest will point back to his song there's a little scene I remember this reminding of this because of having a little daughter the little mermaid I am making an illustration from the little mermaid actually Sadie said this week to Case Case who's your favorite superhero pause mine is Ariel (laughs) three year old girls Mine is Ariel. Her voice is amazing. But there's a scene, you know, she loses her voice. Ursula, the wicked sea queen, witch, whatever it is, has taken the voice away. And she has to get that first kiss from Prince Eric. She can't talk. And there's that scene with the song, Kiss the Girl, where they're in the boat. And Sebastian, is he a crab or a lobster? Lobster? Crab? He's some sort of crustacean. Yeah, thanks, Skip. He's a crustacean. He starts directing the music, remember? And remember how he directs it? The reeds blow, and you hear a tune. And the bullfrogs start to croak. And it's beautiful the way Disney does it. As he directs the music, creation begins to serenade Ariel and Eric as they sit in the boat. That's a cheesy illustration. But you get the image, don't you? Nature is singing a song. It's not a silly Disney tune called Kiss the Girl. Walla, walla, walla. You know that? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Creation has taken up the chorus of Christ's glory. If we have ears to hear, we realize the goal of every bird singing, of every blade of grass swishing in the wind, of the waves pounding their rhythm against the rocks, of whales bellowing in the deep, of volcanoes blasting skyward, is all creation picking up the chorus. All creation picking up the song it was created to sing, the song to the glory and supremacy of Christ. They sing their melodies to Him because Christ is the chorus. He's the reason and the goal and the intent and the purpose, the terminus, the glory, the culmination of every portion of the planet. 
It all moves for Him. It all sings His glory. It's like all of creation, if we had ears to hear it, is singing Handel's Messiah. And they pick up the refrain in the Hallelujah Chorus. Echoing back. It's the Hallelujah Chorus. It's this point. It often gets sung at Christmas. In Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus happens at Easter after the resurrection. Everything is calling out Hallelujah. What does Hallelujah mean? Praise the Lord. And creation, Paul says, is singing. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 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 For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The mountains cry out, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The vallows echo. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord. The oceans bellow and of his Christ and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. All the creatures cry forever and ever, forever and ever. Say the ends of the earth. There's this sweet part where you hear king of kings. Forever, forever. It's just this echoing. That's what creation is doing. King of kings, Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign. He shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, forever and ever. Lord of lords. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. Cries Saturn and the Milky Way and all the universe and the dust mites and the molecules. And you can add your voice to the chorus. He shall reign forever and ever. King of kings. Lord of Lord. The image of the invisible God. The firstborn of creation. Christ stands at the beginning. Creation's agent and composer. He stands in the middle as its conductor. Keeping the melody going. And he stands as the goal. The magnum opus of creation's concerto. Building it all for his glory. And God would call you today. Go and live your life. Singing your small part. In the chorus for Christ's glory. Bow your heads.